working our way through uh, the book of Exodus. It's our pattern here at Zion to regularly work through books of the Bible. And so we're in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 14. I'm just going to read. I've printed the whole uh, passage for you, the whole chapter for you. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4 to get us started. This is God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharot between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. You may be seated. Let's pray one more time and ask God's blessing on his word preached. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're here with us. The love that is unbounded and unending and a love that is measured by the depths that you will go for us. And there is no greater love than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. And you, Lord Jesus, laid down your life for us while we are still sinners. What great love you have for your people. And we pray today, we are hungry to know more of that, to know more of your grace and your mercy, to see deeper into the gospel, to grasp it and have it grasp more of us. And so we pray for your spirit to lead us into the truths of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, fear is a dangerous thing because it can paralyze us. It can keep us from being bold and confident. It can stop us in our tracks, cause us to curl up into the fetal position, it quite literally paralyzes us, evidenced by this. During his 15-year career in pro basketball, Rick Barry had hit a remarkable 89.9% of his free throw shots. His method, though unique, was easily repeatable. And if the NBA had embraced his method of shooting free throws... And an average NBA team could have added six to eight points per game. Now, to give you a sense of the kind of difference that makes the median point differential for an average NBA game is eight to ten points. Entire seasons could swing if people would only have embraced his repeatable, though unique, method. In 2008, the Discover magazine even scientifically evaluated and improved the physics of his approach to shooting free throws. So why was his approach not adopted? Well, fear. You see Rick Barry shot granny style from the free throw line. And no self-respecting NBA player would put his reputation on the line because of the fear of how he would be perceived. It paralyzes us. It keeps us from adopting new and better things. Fear, as you many of you know, is on the rise in America, as is its 
relative feeling of anxiety. It's not a surprise because when the illusion of control breaks down, we feel our broken inability to take care of ourselves and we freak out. It paralyzes us. Fear has been a constant theme throughout the Exodus narrative because of the incontrollable, uncontrollable threat of the Egyptian empire and the vulnerability of the Israelites. From the opening chapters, Egypt was afraid of losing its power, and so it consolidated the Israelites under slavery and committed genocide because God had kept his promise. The nation of Israel had grown in captivity and Egypt was afraid. Egypt had been trying to crush God's people and they were themselves afraid. So they cry out for help. Now we reach the climax of the Israelites leaving Egypt. And just when we thought Egypt had been taken care of, Israel is once again in a very vulnerable position. Egypt is in pursuit of Israel and Israel's backs are against the Red Sea. Once again, they are vulnerable and afraid. Don't be surprised that this is where often God takes his people. This chapter is probably one of the most well-known in the Exodus narrative, even if you're not a Christian, if you're visiting with us today, we're always glad to have you. And, And you may not be familiar with the Bible, but you're probably familiar with this chapter, the parting of the Red Sea. You get the basic sketch. Israel passes through on dry ground, walls of water on the side. You probably remember it from the Charleston Heston movie. Egypt is destroyed as God brings the waters back on the powerful army. Israel is saved. Egypt is judged. And throughout the Bible, this chapter is an, if not the, iconic event of redemption, right? So one of the things that we frequently say, remind us of, is that Scripture is a long developing story from the beginning of of the story in Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, where God says, you know, there's going to be a cosmic battle in this world between evil and my kingdom, and my kingdom will win and get victory over evil. And that narrative plays out. And scripture is one unfolding story until at the very end, the new heavens and new earth come down and Jesus crushes the evil one in his kingdom and throws death and hell into the lake and fire. They are no more. And paradise is restored again. God wins. Later parts of the story as it unfolds, later parts of scripture refer back to this event in chapter 14 of Exodus over 25 times as the iconic event. God judging evil and saving his people. It's really a narrative of God's people being saved by God through death and judgment and coming out on the other side victorious because he'd walked with them through death and judgment. It is the basic sketch of the cross, is it not? God going through death and judgment for his people, evil being destroyed, and his people coming out on the other side victorious. And this passage really in in Exodus 14 is really structured around fear. In verse 10, when Israel sees Pharaoh's army pursuing them, they fear greatly. And then 
in verse 13, Moses admonishes them when they're fearful to fear not and stand firm and then ends in verse 31 with this. The people feared again. This time they feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God is not interested in eliminating fear from our lives. It is a very healthy response. In fact, real freedom comes as he transforms fear to fear. He's moving us from the fear of the threat of our circumstances that debilitates us and paralyzes us to a fear of the Lord that enlivens and frees us. When God is bigger than anything that we face, then we'll appropriately fear in a way that leads to comfort and hope. In order, though, and this is where I think it gets rather scary for us, in order to transform us from fear to fear, from debilitating fear to the freedom of fear, God often leads us to circumstances where we are vulnerable and fearful. He is not afraid to kind of heightening our anxiety, if you will, by showing us our utter vulnerability so that we might see his deep and profound care. Israel had left Egypt and was on a journey to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is at the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. Israel in Egypt had gathered and and inhabited the northern, northeastern corner of the Egyptian empire, and their ultimate destination was the promised land, just northeast of where they had resided. Not, Not very far away, but God takes them, as we'd seen last week, in a very different route. He takes them away from the promised land. He tells them up front, the reason is because your faith is not yet strong enough to manage the challenges that you're going to face when you see the inhabitants of the promised land. Your faith isn't strong enough. You don't yet trust me enough to know that I'll conquer them. And And if I take you to the promised land right now, what you'll experience is fear that paralyzes you And so as they leave Egypt, God is leading them on a journey. He's with them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he leads them in the most unusual situation here in Exodus chapter 14. He takes them to the edge of the Red Sea. Again, the wrong route away from the promised land. There's now their backs are against this vast body of water and they are trapped there. By God's design. He's inciting Pharaoh. Verse 3. Pharaoh will say. Israel is trapped. And then. God will harden his heart. And he'll pursue Israel. And here's the reason why. We're given a little glimpse into God's purposes here. So that he says. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. You'll remember back when Israel. When Moses said to Pharaoh. The Lord says let my people go. Pharaoh's response is. Who's the Lord? I don't know him. Well God says here. I'm going to. For one and final time. I'm going to get glory. And they will know that I'm the Lord. Who controls all things. Why, though, this way of getting glory for himself? God is most concerned about the glory of his name. It's his highest priority. It's his greatest goal. The mission in this world is so that every knee would bow at his glory. The end of the story is the glory of the Lord covering the heavens of the earth. But why 
this way of getting glory? Would God not have been equally glorified if Israel had just passed all the hard stuff and was transported into the promised land and then the people of the promised land just wiped out so that they could go in and and live in ease and comfort? Why this way? Because God is concerned. He's more concerned that we have a deep relationship with him than he is with our ease and comfort. He's concerned. This is just generally true, and I think we lose track of it so often. I know I do. God is more concerned with who we are becoming than what we do for him. He's more concerned with who we are than what we do, and so he knows how intimately we need to have our lives ordered in deepening trust relationships with him because he's willing to create certain scenarios that create a deep, dependent faith. Because faith is like a plant. Right? The seed of a plant has everything necessary for the plant to grow into its whole. In essence, the seed and the plant are the same. The only difference is that one has not yet grown into its full maturity. And faith is the same way. Right? We can be in Christ, right? saved from our sin, clinging to the cross and yet not clinging to the cross. The seed of faith is there, but it not yet grown into full maturity. And God is committed to growing the faith of his people into deeper dependency. And so God, as Matthew Henry says, the great Puritan pastor, God sometimes raises the difficulties in the way of salvation for his people that he may have the glory in subduing them and helping his people over them. And so he orders the events to bring the people of Israel to this crucial point so that they can see what God can do on their behalf. He orchestrates events so that Pharaoh saddles up his army and pursues Israel so that God can display what great power he has and how that great power is always unleashed to save his people so that they, we, might grow in our deeper, dependent faith. He elevates fear so that he can display his great saving love. And because this is what is revealed in those situations, as he kind of orders our lives this way, what's revealed is how weak our faith really is. Now, This is something that I think we try to hide from each other and try not to admit to God. Like we put on our best and you're like, I don't have weak faith. And he's like, no, you really do. And I'm okay with that. So I'm going to work so that you'll see, you'll see how weak your faith is and you'll see how great my covenant love is. So you think that Israel would say at this point with their backs against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army pursuing them, you would think at this point that they would say, oh man, I can't wait to see what God's going to do here. I mean, after the 10 plagues of Egypt, you would think that at this point, they would have gotten the point. God's just setting it up to whoop up on Pharaoh. I mean, there were days when hail was destroying the crops of Egypt and Israel was bathing in the sun. There were days when Israel, when Egypt was so dark 
that men and women couldn't get off their beds. And Israel was dancing in the daylight. There was even a night when the destroyer moved through Egypt, killing the firstborn of every child and, and, and animal. Israel hid under the blood of another. And while Egypt was wailing as death came through, Israel was feasting because God had protected them and saved them. And then Egypt was so afraid when God had gotten done with them that they handed over their riches and said, please get out of here. And so you would think that at this point they would say, oh man, we can't wait to see what God is going to do here. That's not what they say. Verse 10 tells us that when they saw the Egyptian army, they feared greatly. And they start accusing Moses. They start grumbling in unbelief. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone that we could serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Really? I mean, it was better to be slaves It was better to have your children thrown into the Nile in genocide. And not just two chapters later, they're grumbling in unbelief again. And they're saying, at least we had pots of meat in Egypt. They were killing your children. Here's the point. While Israel was out of Egypt, Egypt had not yet gotten out of the Israelites. They had slaves mentality. Their oppression had gone so deep that it touched their sense of identity. They were a free people wishing they were still slaves. And what this says to us is that there's layers to our freedom. Objectively in Christ, we are a free people, but subjectively, like the Israelites, we had not yet grasped the full freedom that we have. While they're carting away the riches of Egypt, they looked at their old taskmasters as a distance, pursuing them to destroy them. And they're thinking to themselves, oh gosh, don't you remember how good life was in Egypt? And we so quickly default to this slave mentality. This is why we need God to afflict us, to raise our fear of our circumstances and the threats in our life so that we might see that he is the one who subdues all things. He's drawing us out of our slavery. While we are set free from sin's penalty and power in Christ, sin's presence is still a very real reality. Unbelief is the thing that keeps us from walking in the full freedom that we have in Christ. I watch this with addicts. When difficulty hits their life, they so quickly look back to the good old days of drug abuse, where they enjoyed a temporary high and also the community of friends, and they forget the unbearable shame and guilt and the imprisonment of not being able to stop. They are objectively free, but subjectively, they're still feeling the allure of the old life. And is this not the story that we are all walking through? It's the pattern of addicts. It's the pattern of all sin. I mean, this is the pattern of the man who finds home life so difficult that he just goes back to work and works all the time. It's the pattern of the person who overeats because the only place they can find comfort. Just walk in patterns of the old man, of sin. I've been set free from sin, but sin still presence in me and it's kind of drawing me constantly back 
to a slave's mentality. We do not yet fully believe that in Christ we have the freedom that we really have. Objectively free, subjectively still struggling because the oppression of sin has so touched our identity that it is hard for us to really believe. And so we return back to slavery, to sin. So watch what God does here. He changes their fears. Again, he intimately knows the struggling faith of his people, so he's going to get the slave mentality out of the Israelites. That's how committed he is to the full and complete salvation of his people. He's not just enough to set them free. He is willing to enter and engage in our struggles and grow our weak faith until the end of the day when Jesus returns. He's going to bring them this way by showing victory in judgment. He's going to bring them life out of the death of their enemies. So in this narrative, we have this benefit of the reader's perspective. Oftentimes we know things that the people of the story don't know. From the people's perspective, Moses has just made a major tactical mistake. He's backed his people against a large body of water. You historians of war and conflict know that water is the thing that you do not want to get trapped against because it is vulnerable. And so in verses 1 through 4, we get to eavesdropped in a conversation the Lord has between him and Moses, and it gives us some top-down perspective. And this is what he's telling Moses. Watch what I'm going to do. He's showing off for his people's sake. He says to Moses, watch this. He's baiting Pharaoh into pursuing Israel with the sole purpose of displaying his power in judgment and salvation. So the people's response is understandable. They are out of Egypt, so full of unbelief. That's why God's doing this. This is, again, the iconic event of redemption. And as such, it is an episode where God is displaying His great grace for His people. The Lord fights for His people because He loves them. And he fights for them, and they gain victory. And this is grace. He fights, they wait. Verse 14. Listen to what Moses says to them. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, verse 19 moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel and there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night long. God protecting his people from the coming onslaught of Pharaoh standing there between them Fearful Israel being protected by the mighty hand of God. Doesn't matter if they're weak as faith, their faith is weak as long as the God who fights for them is strong. Your faith can be the weakest, so you're barely holding on. Doesn't matter, God fights for you. Doesn't matter how weak your faith is, as long as the God that you hold on to is stronger than all of your fears. And so Moses raises his hand, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind that blew all night until the sea had blown back into two high walls to the left and the right. Now, remember, Israel is on the west bank of the Red Sea. 
So the wind coming from the east blew from the far shore and they watched all night long as God of all creation is parting the waters. You hear remnants of Genesis 1. He's, this is creation undone. He, in his judgment, he's undoing creation and creating land out of the, out of the waters so these people can walk through. It's new creation erupting. All night long, the sea parted like a, like a bride coming down the aisle for her groom in a great display of pageantry. The wind blowing and the sea parting as God is rolling out the red carpet for his people because this pageantry all on display because the Lord loves his people and is committed to bringing himself glory through their salvation to prove to his people that the Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. Egypt had two distinct advantages over Israel. They are bigger and they are stronger. That's advantage one. Greatest empire on the face of the earth at the time. And they had, as a result, greater technological advances. At the time, not only were they the greatest military power, they had mastered a relatively new technological advancement, the chariot. And so Pharaoh saddles 600 chosen chariots, the best, most well-trained, armed, advancing men, most dangerous weapons the world had seen. And as that's not enough, all the other chariots with officers over them, the greatest military power bringing their greatest weapons of war to utterly destroy once and for all the Israelites. It is a campaign of shock and awe. And so look at what happens in verse 24. The morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and a cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavy. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel. This little slave unarmed slave nation. Let us free before Israel. Why? For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. This is the way the Lord. Their greatest strength becomes their greatest weakness. The fact that they had heavy chariots armed against the people of God meant that their wheels get clogged in the heavy mud and they drove heavy. And then, I love this, the Lord looks down. Did you catch that? The Lord looks down. It's mocking language. Their great enemies were no match for the Lord who fights for his people. And he just looks down and he says, oh, isn't that cute? Watch this. It's like Dwayne the Rock Johnson looking at a scrawny two-year-old trying to pick a fight and says, oh, that's cute. And here's the result. Because the Lord fights for his people. Imagine if, if they just had heard this. The Lord fights for you. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I believe that. That's great. Okay, no, no, no. Let me set this up so that you'll see. I actually fight for you. But in order for you to experience that in a way that proves my love for you, I'm going to have to take you to the Red Sea so that you're utterly afraid. And then you're going to watch me. Just watch me display my love for you and get glory and judgment. Verse 20, 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. 
And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Their fears are transformed to not eliminated. The secret to freedom is not the absence of fear. It is really the embrace of fear. Where they had feared Pharaoh and his army, now they fear the Lord who, who, really, who really orders all of creation. See, the crossing of the Red Sea isn't just God fighting your battles and, and winning the little battles in your life. right? It's about God fighting and winning the battle, the epic battle. Satan embodied in Egypt and Pharaoh is being judged is Israel being saved through death and God judging sin while saving his covenant people. And we see this most clearly and finally in the cross of Jesus Christ. Where the one who held the power of death is dethroned as the ruler of this world and Jesus is seated high. All power, he says, and authority in heaven and earth is mine. Where death is undone. He's raised from the dead victorious. Where God poured out the full fury of his wrath against sin. And Jesus died. And the waters of the sea of God's judgment are parted. So that by faith in Jesus Christ, we walk through on dry ground. And God says at the cross, look what I've done. A fight and win. Just sit and be quiet. Be silent and rest. This is where gospel freedom really comes from. Gospel freedom comes when the one you know fights. The one you fear because he's an uncontrollable God who can make seas part and then come crashing down. That God can't be controlled when that is the one that you fear and you know he loves you is when you can walk in freedom. The only way to get the slave's mentality out of your heart is to embrace the love of God that is for us in Christ. You know, he fights for me and always wins. The secret to the freedom of the gospel, confidence that comes when we experience the proof of the cross. Christ for us. Victorious. Walking with us. I might lose my job. I might not like my job. I know this. The God who is ordering all of creation is for me and loves me and fights, and I just need to rest in that reality and trust. What he's up to is getting the slave's mentality out of me because I am no longer a slave, but a son in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, the God of all creation, if you fight for us, then make us bold. Forgive us when we grumble and complain. We're so full of unbelief still. So please keep fighting for us. That we might grasp the true freedom 
that we have in Jesus Christ. May your spirit convince our spirits of this truth so that in the midst of fear we might cry out, Abba, Father, help us rest in knowing that you're the God who fights. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.